Welcome back to another episode of City Hall Pass. I'm Kapel Lungani, counsel to the mayor of New York City. We created this forum, the first of its kind in New York City, to give you, the public, a unique window into the highest levels of our city government. We interview New York City's finest public servants and get them to open up in a way that is both deeply personal and insightful. And on its best days, we hope that our podcast is equal parts educational and inspiring. And now I want to introduce my two co-hosts today, two brilliant women who inspire me every day, Best Chu and Kate Coughlin. Thanks, Capel. Happy to be here. This is Best Chu. I'm currently Chief of Staff to the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Hi, I'm Kate Coughlin, and I currently serve as Deputy Counsel for the Office of the Council to the Mayor. I'm excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez. Eric Gonzalez made history in November of 2017 when he became the first Latino District Attorney elected in New York State. D.A. Gonzalez began his career in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office upon his graduation from law school in 1995. During his career, Gonzalez tried a full range of cases, including homicides. Promoted by his predecessor, the late D.A. Ken Thompson, in 2014, D.A. Gonzalez successfully guided the launch of several key initiatives, including the creation of the office's nationally recognized Conviction Review Unit. Since his appointment to lead the office, D.A. Gonzalez has implemented his own trailblazing initiatives, including bail reform, a young adult court, a policy to reduce unfair immigration consequences in criminal cases, and more. Following his swearing-in as district attorney in January, Gonzalez launched a groundbreaking initiative known as Justice 2020 to help him carry out his vision of keeping Brooklyn safe and strengthening trust in our justice system by ensuring fairness and equal justice for all. We spoke to the DA about his lifelong commitment to his community in Brooklyn, some of his most memorable investigations, his approach to criminal justice reform, and much more. We hope you enjoy. It gives me great pleasure to welcome the Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, to City Hall Pass. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Eric, you are a born and raised New Yorker, and more specifically a Brooklynite, and now you live just a few blocks from where you actually grew up. How important do you think growing up in Brooklyn has been to your life, personally and professionally? Well, I, I love Brooklyn. You know, I could have lived anywhere else that I wanted to be at, but I really wanted to be in Brooklyn, really wanted to raise my family in Brooklyn. I wanted my kids to grow up in a community that was diverse and had cultural food and music and things to kind of, you know, continue the pride that I have in my Latino heritage. But professionally, it's made all the difference. I think it's what separates me from a lot of other prosecutors. We, we talk a lot about working with communities. But for me, if you're not proximate with the communities you serve, it's very hard to really have a true understanding of the needs of the community, what the community wants. And for me, since I never left, you know, people enjoy seeing me shopping in the same supermarkets they shop and my kids going to the local school where we live. These things make a difference. Um, having the chief prosecutor live, walk around, coach you know, literally do the things that I've done just gives people a sense that the criminal justice system is being led by a person who they relate to. I think it makes a tremendous difference in community trust. Because right when you graduated from law school, you went to work in the Brooklyn DA's office. And I think these days, you know, people tend to, whether they're lawyers or not, they tend to, you know, work a few years at one place, move on. Can you tell us a little bit about why you've dedicated virtually your entire career to the Brooklyn DA's office? It's a great question. And, and my career path is unusual for sure. When I went to law school in particular, I went to law school with the purpose of becoming a prosecutor. 
and really to become a prosecutor in Brooklyn. And it's one of the things that my wife tells me she's most proud of. Because when I met her during orientation at law school, you know, we were talking and, you know, everyone was saying, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a prosecutor. I was one of the only people at my law school, I went to University of Michigan, who wanted to, you know, be a prosecutor. And she asked me why. And I said, you know, I grew up in East New York during 80s and 90s. And I witnessed really what an unsafe community looked like. I saw the needs of community. I saw people who got in trouble and got arrested. And I often thought that the law enforcement response was not the appropriate response. They were picking off kids on corners when I saw the people who were really driving violence were not getting arrested. And when I had an opportunity to go to court, it was eye-opening for me. We took a trip down to the Brooklyn courthouse from this law program I was in, and everyone in the courtroom was either Black or Hispanic. But all of the prosecutors, all the defense attorneys, the judges, even the court staff were all white. And it seemed like that racial disparity just striking me in my face, you know, made me decide that my community could use someone who grew up there, who understood the problems and who could serve as a prosecutor. And so I had a, a wonderful career. And every now and then when I thought about leaving because I'm getting married and I want to make more money or I'm having children, I want to make more money, a, a new case or something entered my life in the DA's office that kept me there. You know, things work out. Um, in 2013, Ken Thompson is running for DA and he's running on really the reforms that were the precursor to this progressive DA movement. And he captured my imagination. I decided I was going to stay on to see if he won. And when he won, he did something unusual. He took someone who had been pre-existing at the DA's office and he put me in the leadership position first as his counsel. But then within four or five months, I was appointed chief assistant district attorney, meaning I was the number two person in the office. And we then started the reforms that all of you have heard about within March in April of our first year in office together as an executive team, I had framed a marijuana declination policy for Ken Thompson, and I had framed the starting of the Conviction Review Unit, which is considered a national model today. Did you have any doubts about running for the office after Ken Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I was non-political. I was a career prosecutor. You know, we were taught to be nonpartisan and, and not to stay out of politics so that we could fairly investigate anything that came through. And Ken tells me he, he has cancer. He tells me, you know, he intends to live, but he is not intending to run for office again. He's like, Eric, this is it. I'm not running again, but I'm going to beat this and I'm going to serve out my term, but you should get ready to run. And I just said, I don't know if I can raise the money. I don't know, you know, the politics. I don't know what to, to happen. And something really incredible and organic grassroots came after Ken passed bar associations defender organizations, social service agencies, people who I had been spending the last 19 years of my career working with all wrote op-eds and wrote things, notes to the governor saying Gonzalez should have a chance to finish out the term and serve as district attorney. And then the Hispanic Latino community also said, and by the way, we've never had a Latino district attorney in the state of New York. This guy should have a chance to show what he can do since Ken Thompson had so much confidence and trust in him. Remind people that Ken came in with a whole transition team. He knew hundreds of qualified lawyers, and yet he wanted me to leave that office.
One thing that's interesting is most judges are appointed, whereas the DAs are elected. Do you think DAs should be elected or should they be appointed? Because they are supposed to be these, these neutral arbiters of the law. I absolutely think, I know it's different in New Jersey, but I absolutely think DAs should be elected. You should be accountable to your communities um, that you serve in all regards. And, and it's every four years. And of course, I wish I did not have to raise money. That's, you know, I, I think all district attorneys feel uneasy about raising money. It's so important that we are held accountable to our communities and uh, not simply be appointed. You served and lived in your community, and it really sounds like the community came around, you know, and supported you, especially when you were thinking about whether or not to run for district attorney in Brooklyn. Ken Thompson was the first African-American district attorney in Brooklyn. You are the first Latino to be district attorney in Brooklyn. What does that mean to you? I mean, if you look back at yourself as like, you know, little like six-year-old Eric Gonzalez, what kind of impact do you think it would have made to have you be able to see someone who looks like you be the district attorney? There's a lot of emotions, really positive emotions and really emotions that make me uh, sad about that statement being the first. A positive emotion was actually just the other day during Hispanic Heritage Month. A young girl, I estimate to be eight or nine years old, walked by me in the street with her mom and she said, are you Mr. Gonzalez? And I said, yes. And she goes, I just wrote a report about you for Hispanic Heritage Month. You're the first Hispanic DA, right? And I said, I am. And I introduced myself to her and I had one of my sons with me who was about the same age. And I realized that for that young girl, there was a person that she could identify with in a position of you know, authority in, in our government. But it also makes me really sad that Latinos are really so underrepresented in all aspects in our city and really in our state. There is no Latino citywide elected official. There's no statewide Latino elected official. And although the Hispanic Latino community is a large and vibrant community, I see underrepresentation in boardrooms and business and media. It's not just government, but it's something that is, you know, really troublesome. And, and we are trying to create a diverse and inclusive society to have, you know, so few representatives in, in government in particular, because I think it makes a difference. I think it really makes a difference in how I view the people that I serve and, and work with and how they view government. And so one of my commitments, and again, something that Ken Thompson spoke very publicly about, was that it was my obligation to provide opportunities and, and diversity within my office. And I can tell you a really interesting story that just happened last week. A Assistant District Attorney in my office who was a supervisor, having served almost 33 years in public service and having come from another city district attorney's office and joined my administration, when he retired, he lamented about, he never understood, he was a member of the Asian community, he said he never understood how underrepresented he felt as a prosecutor all of these years until he came to Brooklyn and he said, looking at the diverse executive team that we've put together and that my commitment to making sure that the people who serve you know, can do so in a culturally competent way, in a diverse way, and not just the lawyers, but the staff and others. And, and that was a happy moment for me to hear that he felt represented in, in his situation being in Brooklyn. And so I just hope that you know, that continues, that me being the first just gives a pathway for others to feel like they can do it also. Yeah, I, 
I totally understand that because I think despite whether or not you want to, I think, put your identity at like the forefront of your work, it does still, it still happens, right? And I think it's also a really good opportunity for folks who might be underrepresented to elevate certain issues. So for myself, you know, during COVID, there's been a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes. You know, I've been very supportive through my office and through this office, the mayor's office, that I was able to put together a panel uh, to moderate a panel earlier this year where we talked about, you know, anti-Asian hate crimes and the issues and resources available to New York City residents. And it helped me really feel like at least a little bit, like at least I'm doing something. And supported, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. How has your office tried to combat hate crimes? So the rise in hate crimes has really concerned me as district attorney in Brooklyn at the end of 2018. And really during 2019, we saw a rise, a really dramatic rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. I saw firsthand how much fear there was in the community that, you know, walking while Jewish in Brooklyn could lead to you being attacked, especially if you, you know, dressed in religious garb. And I was determined that that was not going to be what was going to happen in my county, that people were not going to be afraid to walk around. Plus, we've also seen LGBTQ hate crimes. In 2019, I created our first dedicated hate crimes bureau. That bureau was charged with exclusively investigating and prosecuting hate crimes. Unlike most of the DA's offices, this was a standalone unit dedicated and committed to fighting hate crimes. And so it was really the first standalone unit in the city um, where the prosecutors only worked on hate crimes. Why that's important is because the prosecution of hate crimes is so difficult. It's more difficult than other prosecutions because in most other cases, you just have to prove the identity of the perpetrator and that the perpetrator committed the crime. In hate crimes, you actually have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt a third element, which is the motive it was because of hate or bias. And you have to prove that it was a substantially motivating factor. And it's not so easy in a lot of cases. Sometimes it's easy to tell you this is why they're doing it. But then often in these attacks, even when we saw these anti-Asian attacks, they were not saying this is why I'm doing it. Building that unit actually mattered because we were able to really be on the ground very quickly as anti-Asian hate crimes were happening in the city. Uh, my office spontaneously put together a, a show of support and of some trainings in the community. And then my chief of my hate crimes bureau said, let's give an opportunity to do a competition in our elementary school all the way to high school, illustrate against hate. And we had so many submissions. I think we had over 500 submissions, many from Asian students in particular, who showed us the impact of hate in the, on their lives. And so for me, obviously, we're going to prosecute these cases very vigorously. Yesterday, my office had a very important conviction at a jury trial on a hate crime matter where the person had committed a horrific hate crime. But this unit is also super important because they're also involved and really responsible for preventative measures. And so they're out in the schools. We did this Illustrate to Hate campaign. We're working with different organizations um, to help educate and prevent this. One of the most heartbreaking things that I saw was that a lot of these hate crimes were committed by juveniles. And so we're working really hard to fight this. Uh, but having this unit really meant a lot to the community because they knew there was a place they could go to for help. And so I really appreciate the question because hate crimes are the you know, most destructive cases that, that I see 
that come into the criminal justice system because they have a chilling impact on everyone who thinks that they can be the next victim. You've been involved in a lot of complex and high-profile investigations. For example, earlier this year, you led a massive takedown of 19 members of the 900 gang. Can you talk a little bit about what led up to that takedown? Well, what we saw in my first three years in office, and when I was running for office, I created a Justice 2020 platform. And there were 17 recommendations. It was really among the most progressive reform agendas that any district attorney's office had in the country. You know, I got elected just before this progressive district attorney movement really kicked in. I think I was among, you know, the forefathers of that movement with a few other district attorneys in the country. And we put together a really aggressive agenda about how we could reform the criminal justice system, deal with disparities, racial disparities. But part of this you know, agenda as a career prosecutor also meant that I was going to address violence and I was going to address gun violence in particular. Some of you may know that I lost a brother to gun violence. So this is not a topic that I take lightly, that you know, there are way too many guns on the streets. And so I was committed to figuring out how to keep people safe. And so I could very proudly tell you my first three years in office of focusing in on a really small percentage of violent people. We were able to drive down shootings in Brooklyn, you know, by 38% and we reduced the homicide rate by a third. And that's an incredible accomplishment in your first three years as district attorney. Unfortunately, COVID happened and we saw those spikes. But the, the way we did it originally, I figured was still the way to go. I didn't change the enforcement strategy, which was there's really a small handful of people who are driving the violence. We called them in my office drivers of violence. We created a violent criminal enterprise unit, a crime strategies unit, and a gun violence suppression unit in my office to focus all on those people. And so these takedowns are not meant to round up a lot of black and Hispanic men. These are not large takedowns. These are surgical operations based on a lot of intelligence, a lot of information that these are the people responsible for shooting at or killing other people. So I don't do large gang takedowns like you see in other counties. These are small takedowns that have dramatic impacts because these are the people who are shooting. So in that takedown you refer to, after we did that takedown, we saw three or four months in that housing development without a shooting. So we know that it works except that can't be our only strategy. And so what we've done in addition to the takedowns and holding those gun offenders accountable is we put in a lot of resources. We held a number of conversations in the community about why we took this action because we don't want to undermine public confidence, right? In a lot of these takedowns, you have the grandmothers who think that all these young people just got swept up. And so we wanted to go in and explain ourselves and say, this is what we did and this is why we did it. And we held a number of events. I wrote a letter the day of the takedown saying this happened today. We made sure that they got to all the stakeholders in the developments. Then we had a Zoom the next day. A week later, we had a community meeting. A month later, we had another community meeting because in the first community meeting, what was missing were the young people. So then we sponsored a community meeting in Bedford-Stuyvesant with a lot of other actors to get the young people in. And we had 50, 60 young people who showed, uh, but over 200 people showed to this community meeting to talk about gun violence. And I think that is how we're ultimately going to combat gun violence 
It's going to be a partnership between police and community and the prosecutors. No one entity can do it by themselves. And so we've been working very carefully with some of the community partners, the crisis management folks. And I'm not ready to announce it, but in the next several weeks, we're going to announce a major initiative in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area to drive down gun violence even more. One that's involving working with community-based partners to drive down violence. But I'm really proud there's going to be a reinvestment in that community like the Brooklyn DA's office has never done before. What's the most memorable investigation that you've worked on? You know, as a young prosecutor, you always kind of remember, I think you always kind of remember your first trial when you're actually walking to the courtroom. But I think the most meaningful work that I've done actually happened when Ken Thompson asked me to be involved with the setting up of the conviction review unit. There was a number of cases that had come in when we announced the formation of a new conviction review unit. There were a hundred cases that had immediately flooded in and we had to figure out how to get through this inventory of cases and really do a fair and thorough reinvestigation. I was involved in helping to prioritize in the category one, two, and three, where category one cases were ones that there was really obvious defects and, and lack of you know, due process or other errors that looked really like the person had been deprived uh, a fair trial and possibly actually innocent. And I, I had a few of those cases that I, I got to work on. And one of the cases in particular meant a lot to me because I guess it was the first wrongful conviction case that I ever fully investigated. And it, it was a man who, at a very early age, 16 years old, him and his accomplice had been accused of committing a gunpoint carjacking in Queens. You know, the allegations were that they drove the car from Queens into Brooklyn, into sort of the Bushwick area of Brooklyn, and at that point decided to rob and kill the, you know, the owner of the vehicle. So the, the case was being prosecuted, had been prosecuted in Brooklyn because the, the homicide had taken place in Brooklyn. When we looked at the evidence and when I was going through the evidence and I had tried homicide cases before and I had tried other cases, I had never really come across a case that had so little evidence. The entire evidence in the case that really caused these two men to go to prison, these two boys, the other guy who's even younger, he was 15, what caused these guys to go to prison was that they made very short videos, maybe a minute and a half long, two minutes long, where they said the other person had shot and, and killed the owner of the vehicle and they had implicated each other. There was no evidence that corroborated those confessions. Quite frankly, as we investigated the descriptions that had been given by witnesses in Queens about what the persons looked like who had committed the carjacking did not match these guys. And ultimately, after doing a reinvestigation, you know, I, what I learned was neither one of these boys ever drove a car before. They were fairly poor. Like the thought that they were driving from Queens into Brooklyn and, and making all these maneuvers really seemed to be unreliable. This man had spent like 29 and a half years in jail by the time I was investigating this case. Um, we made the recommendation after looking at the allegations that were made back then that physical force and coercion happened at the precinct. They were told, you want to go home tonight? You just say the other guy did it, we'll let you go. Their accounts of how this incident took place didn't match up. Their accounts of what the gun looked like, what type of gun it was, didn't match up. 
this was really the first time I had ever really come across a false confession that I knew in my heart after being a prosecutor for 20 plus years that this was a false confession. And it was heartbreaking to know that these people had spent so much time in jail and were still in jail. And the co-defendant actually had died, got sick and died while he was in prison. And so I was very moved to be able to go to Ken Thompson and say, this is one of the category one cases. This is a guy who's innocent. I have every confidence in the world that he did not commit this crime. He does not fit any descriptions of the shooter. And after having met him and interviewed him, I knew that he had not committed this crime. And it's, it's so remarkable because after you show these confessions, like now, as we know more about the science between false confessions, every person who's ever viewed it has said that is a textbook example of false confession. Getting him out of prison was so meaningful to me because I got to know him and really gave him a second chance on life and got him to clear his name. When Ken called the mother of the person who had died in jail, a, a guy named Willie Stuckey, his mother just bawled and cried and screamed. And she was like, I knew it. I knew it. He always said he didn't do it, Mom. You know, he's dead now, but thank you. So I can die in peace knowing my son didn't do this. I broke down in tears that day. And so David McCollum has gotten out, he's living his life, but this work really had to, to be an ongoing commitment for me in my office, doing this wrongful conviction work, and then making sure that the prosecutors who are training today are aware of all of these issues that we didn't know about, we weren't trained about, which is, you know, witness identification issues, false confessions, and a litany of other issues that are collectively responsible for, for wrongful convictions in our country. So we are introducing a new game. And recently, when I've been introducing a new game, I like to have like a lead-in song. Oh, no. It should be like a Brooklyn based song, right? Uh, uh, this is something. Yeah. <laughs> DA, 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 come and corruption go home. Work all night, bad guys on the run. DA, come and corruption go home. This DA is from Brooklyn. DA, come and corruption go home. But now it's time for question fun. DA, come and corruption go home. Okay, so for this game. Uh, no words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to give you two options and you pick one. Brooklyn or Manhattan? Brooklyn. I may mispronounce these, so you can help me. Luzo, Luzos or Bamonte? So Bomantis is old school. I, I would have to say Bomantis on that. Big Red Bear or Wolverine? Oh, that hurts. That hurts. Cornell changed my life. I'm very grateful to the opportunity to go to Michigan and be a Wolverine and go blue. But Cornell changed my life. Cornell opened up doors to me that I never imagined even existed. So Big Red Bear. The Green Trial Zone or the Orange Trial Zone? Green trial zone. In green trial zone, I also had the ability to lead that, that trial division. And I thought that during the years that I was put in charge of that trial division, it started my thinking on what fairness and justice really looked like. All right. This last one is just super cute. The Cub Scout, Blue the Builder, or the Bear Necessities? I love being a scout. I was a scout myself, and I really enjoyed the time that I served as a uh, den leader for the Cub Scouts. So you won't choose between Baloo the Builder or the Bear Necessities? You know, I, I was more of a, a Weeblos guy, actually. Okay. <laughs> All 
All right, and that concludes the first and last game of DA Come and Corruption Go Home. Uh, I want to thank our friend and, and someone we all look up to and, and really have admired here in City Hall, uh, the Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez. Eric, thank you again for taking time out of your really busy schedule to educate us today and talk about your really inspiring life and your career. It was an honor to be here and, and thank all of you for the opportunity to talk about my thoughts on safety and, and fairness. I want to thank our guest, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, for joining us on City Hall Pass. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and look forward to talking to you again soon on another episode of City Hall Pass. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of the Council to the Mayor of New York City. 